This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's podcast dedicated to the original and new crew of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore, and we're back again to discuss a fan favorite, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is returning to the big screen September 10th and 13th in 600 theaters across the country, Ken. Yeah, you know, and, and your buddy, not so much mine, Scott Mance, I know he likes Scott Mance, uh, <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be interviewing William Shatner for a 35-minute uh, interview that's part of the show. I don't know if it's happening before or after, but that should be, that should be pretty interesting. Yeah, Scott Mance. I'm a big Scott Mance fan. I'm, I'm a fan of him from uh, actually Screen Junkies. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. They do the honest trailers that are pretty funny, and they have yeah. they have little movie review shows, and then on the side, and they have this show called Movie Fights, and it's it's a very fun show. It gets uh, three people together just arguing about movies, and uh, it's kind of like an ESPN show for sports, just with movies. That's how I relate to it, kind of like uh, Pardon the Interruption or Around the Horn or something like that. And Scott Mance is a frequent guest on it, and I became a fan of him through that. And then come to know that he's actually part of Access Hollywood and he does all this other media things. And he's a huge Star Trek fan. Actually got to meet him in Las Vegas. Uh, uh, well, saw him present, obviously. But then ran into him in the uh, in the casino last year and took a picture with him and told him I was a big fan. And that was a lot of fun. So, I, you know, that's two of my favorite people right there. Scott Manson, William Shatner. So, definitely, I'm going to look forward to that interview. Okay, maybe I'll back off on Scott Mance then. I um, <laughs> I don't know him personally. And the funny thing is he's a New Englander. You know, he's from this this part of the woods, and he, he grew up, I think, uh, in, in Rhode Island, I want to say, if I remember correctly. So I know he's he's fairly local, but you know what got me, I think, was uh, his his stage presence when last year in Las Vegas at, at the 50th anniversary. I, I don't know why. I, I just took kind of like what he was saying or, or talking to the audience is almost condescending, and maybe it was unintentional, and I have to be a little bit more forgiving and always assume good intent. But at any he, rate... He, he just gets really he just gets really excited, Ken. Oh, he's he does. A big he fan. does. He's a motive I just, guy. I just wish he would take ownership of when he was interviewing the, um, the Kelvin Timeline crew, and you know he, he was talking about bringing back the original cast and how good it was, and he called the TNG you know, show kind of, he used the P word, (laughs) essentially calling them wussies with a P. And, um, you know, it was there and he played it and then he's like, oh, I really didn't mean it. I really didn't mean it. It's like, yeah, you did. Just own it (laughs) because it was funny as hell. But you you said it was a 35 minute interview. It's actually an 18 minute interview. Ken, I don't want to, I don't want to get people's hopes up. 
Uh, oh, okay. I'm, I'm either I misread it or you're reading a different. Well, it's uh, the it's the 35th anniversary, but it's a new 18 minute interview with William Shatner and Scott Mance. So because because it's part of these oh. these uh, fandom oh. event screenings, you know they do these a lot. I've gone to many of these. Seen uh, well, you know. Okay. Speaking of speaking of TNG, okay, I went to all the fandom event screenings for when the Blu-rays came out for TNG. I saw season oh, one. That must have been great. Season two and season three. It was so awesome especially seeing episodes of the next generation on the big screen like you're in this crowd of people everyone's like reacting to the episodes yeah. laughing like you know there's a lot of data stuff people would laugh about you know or especially in our early seasons data was was really funny and uh and just just the energy there of the crowd and then you know this is in tng's being remastered for blu-ray so they had all these uh special interviews with the you know, kudas and behind the scenes stuff and all, all the blu-ray special features they show little snippets of it and get you really excited about buying the blu-rays which you know i did and yeah th- that, that was awesome and, and then uh unfortunately after season three they stopped for various reasons um I, you know no need to go into all the nitty-gritty legal stuff here but you know showing television episodes on the screen there's certain you know people had some problems with that directors and whatnot and i'm sure a book will be written about all that one day but anyway lots of fun you know i actually saw a couple years ago i saw a uh, halloween the original uh 1978 halloween sure at a fan of event screening and then they had a special interview with john carpenter and so i like how they they don't just like show the movie they actually have something else in addition to that and that's what the scott mance william shatner's interview is going to be and uh and, and whenever you can go see exclusive content like that at these at uh, these shows really makes it all worthwhile because yeah we love star trek too of course we'd love to see it again but that extra new material really is what what pulls you in to see it for another time to shell up you know money to go see something that you have on your blu-ray shelf to just pop it in any time right Right. Uh, first of all, I'm very jealous. I have never seen any of the TNG episodes on the big screen or anything along those lines, you know, other than the TNG movies, of course. And, um, you know, that that sounds like a lot of fun. And it's a shame, you know, how um, it, it really what, what, what deters all of this for the fans and when they pull it off the screen, that's all just greed. And and I know how, hey, people have a, have a right to earn a living and earn money. And if they weren't being compensated because things are showed on a movie screen or there was nothing on a contract or something, it's always one person who's got to screw it all up. So that's a shame because, you know, wouldn't it be great if, um, you know, if if at a Star Trek convention or, or, or previous, right, we got all of our co-hosts from all the different podcasts together and they would show different, you know, like the best episodes ever renting out the movie theater, you know, at the... At the, the um, was it the Flamingo? Whatever it is next door. I stayed there, and I can't remember the name of it. But uh, they had a big movie theater there. You know, it just that would be a blast. That would be a blast because we talk about all these things, but we've never, you and I have never seen a Star Trek movie together or a show together. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've been to the convention together, of course, but, man, that would be fun. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that presents itself one of these days because that would be just the uh, the ultimate, right? Could you, can you picture all of the uh, the Trek FM? Can you, Brandon? I mean, my goodness, <laughs> I have uh, to contain his excitement. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Get your hands out of my popcorn, dude. Right? I mean, get your own. That's <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it'll be. It, it would be fun. So, you know what? what what's going to be fun to talk about tonight, Zach? Is um, is the experience of Wrath of Khan for a couple of reasons. One. Um, it's a great movie. It it put Star Trek really on the map, and and everything kind of blew from that in in in, in magnificent ways. And I think that's that's exciting to talk about. And I know it's been done, but I think I think we we can add a little more flavor to it. 
the commentary that was attached to that movie, to the release on disc, was one of the best commentaries I've ever listened to to this day. On Nicholas Meyer was, was brilliant. I, I want to kind of hit on that a bit. And then kind of follow up with the impact Star Trek had going forward from that movie. Not to mention, you know, what it did for Leonard Nimoy and what he started to do afterwards. So what I'd like to do is, is just kind of talk to you first about, you know, when you first saw it, let's get into it. And then, um, you know, let's, let's kind of drive this thing and, and have a little fun reminiscing about a great Star Trek film, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, for me, The Wrath of Khan, my parents had the VHS tape, so I just grew up watching it. I'm not sure exactly what order I saw the Star Trek movies in or, or what exact age I was when I first saw Star Trek 2. Uh, you know, because I would watch lots of Star Trek on you know VHS tapes, you know, back in the day. So uh, I just, you know, the the biggest thing, and we were just talking about this in our last episode, uh, 184 Nightmares as a Child. Look at that, Ken. Look at that recall. Uh, only because it was the last episode. But you're good at that, dude. The uh, city eel scene of everything that's what stuck out to me, especially as a kid. Like that was terrifying. That was like, that was literally go and hide behind the couch because this is intense stuff as a kid. So more than anything else, that is what stuck out to me about Wrath of Khan. Uh, obviously, Spock dying was sad. You know, that that image always stuck with me. And then uh, since Star Trek Three is my favorite movie, I had seen so much. I probably rewatched Star Trek Three the most, but I knew Star Trek through more through Star Trek Three because, you know, you have the little recap at the beginning and it's like a direct sequel and there's so many story threads that tie together. So uh, those, those two, Star Trek Two II and Three, are probably the ones I watched the most when I was a kid. Even and then you know when you're a kid you don't you think maybe since it's more lighthearted you would like Star Trek four more but I never really like completed the trilogy much watching everything uh, when I was younger because it's like oh that's the boring one when they're on Earth well let's you know I want to see Star Trek I want to see you know ships flying around I want to see space battles I want to see that kind of stuff I want to see him walking down the street you know <laughs> riding a bus I was like now I mean I can really appreciate a lot more especially the comedy as I got older I'm like this is a hilarious film but back when I was a kid it was always Star Trek two and three were the ones that I always revisit. And, uh, and James Horner's score, my favorite Star Trek scores, were from James Horner. Really? Two and three, right here. I just, I just love how it was different, but it was adventure like ish and, and all that. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith is great, but I just, if I, the ones I listen to the most are Star Trek two and three, the music. So those, those are the things that stuck out to me the most. Uh, thinking back on on the very early days of me watching these films. Oh, that's great, and I, I, I'm not going to debate you on any of that, because actually, I, we did that before, um, episode 123, going way back, we did the um, the T-Walk versus uh, the motion picture with Norm, it was uh, the conversational Kobayashi Maru, we kind of compared some of the things that you just said, but not in a debate like one is better than the other, just kind of a perspective thing, so I hear what you're saying, but but here's something interesting from, from my perspective on The Wrath of Khan. It has to be the movie that I have seen the most, by far. Like movie, Couple, period? Period. <laughs> I've seen it more times than any other film. I do not know how many times I've seen it. And the reason I say that is a couple. All right, I'm getting back in my rocking chair, okay? Back in my day. Um, so I, I remember when it was released, in, in I believe it was June of 1982, it was it was a big deal uh, for all of us Star Trek fans. Star Trek was going through its renaissance time. It really was. And, uh, you know, as you know, I was a big fan of the motion picture, so I couldn't wait for a sequel. And, um, you know, I, I went and saw it or whatever. It took me a little bit to warm up to it, but once I started getting into it, I don't know how many times I saw it that summer. I think E.T. was out at that same time. I was like, yep, yeah, went and saw E.T., yeah, great movie, couple of tears, yada, yada, back to Star Trek. And then... Uh, um, 
the the interesting about the rat thing about the Wrath of Khan is videotapes, uh, VHS tapes just start and beta back then. They really hadn't figured out that the tiebreaker. The, the, or they had the just, HD DVD of its time, the Betamax, right, Ken? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So this was the first uh, mass-produced uh, video cassette in 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 movie history or very close to the first it paramount went completely different back in 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 82 83 84 back in those days you went to blockbuster a vhs cassette tape and i'm not kidding would go for like 80 dollars so the only ones that could buy it were the big stores and you'd rent it for two or three days they'd get their money back within a week or two you know from their investment into the movie and in Paramount went a different way. They they just said we're going to mass produce and we're going to start the first one with the Wrath of Khan. And I'll never forget it. My I had a friend of mine who lived down the street in the neighborhood, and his parents bought it for him twenty four ninety nine. I still remember to this day, right? Which even today seems like it's a little high, right? I mean, you think about how how much the cost of this stuff has actually gone down. Uh, consumer electronics and and in media of all kinds, of, the costs have really dropped. But at any rate. And, and I remember me and probably four or five of my friends uh, going over to my buddy's house. We were all in high school uh, to watch The Wrath of Khan on his VHF because his dad bought it first. And I can't remember if I had one at that point or not. It wasn't too long after. But everybody then bought The Wrath of Khan because you could. You could go into, I mean, Walmart wasn't around back then, but a Kmart or a Zare or something like that, Leechmere, whatever the hell we had, and, and pick up The Wrath of Khan. It was everywhere. So... You know, a movie back. You know, this is HBO was just getting going. All these other things they have been around, but not a lot of people had it. So the idea of watching an unedited film in your own house mm. was completely new, and it was a lot of fun. And of course, you know, at this point, you know, we've watched it so many times. Uh, you could you you could do it word for word, just like we could with the television episodes, and and that's what I really remember about the Wrath of Khan, and and that's why it had such an indelible stamp on on me in in, in that age. I mean, I was I was like I said, I was in high school, I was fifteen, sixteen years old, something like that, and and loved it. So, you know, I, I, I know everybody said, oh, Ken, big motion picture fan. I am. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but there's no doubt about that. The Wrath of Khan changed everything for Star Trek, right? It it where where the motion picture got everything launched and it was beautiful and it was epic and it was huge. Wrath of Khan was a TV show made with a bigger budget that had the chemistry just right. And and even though it took me a while to really warm up to it because it wasn't that epic size that I that I was hoping it would be, you know, they weren't going to spend another 40 million on the next movie. Um it was phenomenal. It was just phenomenal. And and that w- is why, you know, Everything took off afterwards. I think it was brilliant from a, from a marketing point of view. It, it was a successful film. It was a lot of fun. And then the way they marketed it in VHS, it was like everybody was going to know this movie, and everybody was going to own this movie. And and though they say from a from a blo- uh, box office point of view, that the Voyage Home, as you were saying, uh, was number one back in those days. It was it was number one for all the movies for a long time. It was the first one to get over a hundred million, I believe, one hundred and twenty million something in that in that market. I will bet you, if you if you go back and you look at what the Wrath of Khan brought in holistically from from all those videotape sales, I'll bet you it far surpassed a lot of those other movies. I don't know if I can get my hands on that data, but one of these days I will. So, just a, just an interesting perspective from uh, from a guy back in. Uh, Uncle Ken's eighties, as you like to say. <laughs> well, that's interesting that you know you being such a fan of 
the motion picture. You know, the the Wrath of Khan is if you if you really think about it, it's kind of like a soft reboot of the Star Trek franchise. You know, we we throw around the term reboot all the time in recent years here in movies, but when you look at the motion picture, you look at Wrath of Khan, they basically changed everything except for the actual actors. Like everything is different from the motion picture. So. From your perspective, someone who was a big fan of motion picture, was that kind of jarring to you? You're like, hey, where are my pajama uniforms? Like, what's up? <laughs> it wasn't so much that. What it was, listen, the Star Trek The Motion Picture was a much more beautiful film, the way it was shot, um, the way the ship seemed very functional and everything had its had its place and a, and a purpose. And that's why it was a little difficult for me to get into the Wrath of Khan, it, it had very little to do with one story being better than the other. It had uh, more to do with being more realistic than the other. And and I don't know why certain people zoom in on certain things. And that was that was me. I, I love the fact that, you know, when they designed the Enterprise for the motion picture, they had a complete manual of what each station does, who sits there, what they do. You just don't bounce around from seat to seat. Uh, everybody has a certain role to play. There weren't a lot of extra lights and different colors and things like that because you knew what to do. Everything was there. And, and Nick Meyer had a very different view. He made it much more science fiction-y. It didn't look as realistic to me. And so when I first came in from this real epic film, huge film with that great you know warp speed and those great special effects and that beautiful ship well you know they, they took the pearl paint away from the enterprise because they filmed it differently they they changed the uniforms and i like the change i love i love the monster maroons i really do uh, it's not admiral kirk's uh, uniform but it's they're the best holistically i think from all the series combined it's still the, my favorite uniform and 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 they came up with a, a brilliant story and and a great plot line with you know obviously a lot more action and and all that other stuff. So you know once I could just kind of just like you know Ken, what are you so obsessed with this stupid? It's it's just a movie, you know. And and even though I like it when things are very realistic and you can you can fall into it like that, I just had to kind of get my mind adjusted. Once I did. I, I was fine, but those—that's really the the biggest switch to me. And that's why, like, when I first saw it, I was like, "Well, wait a minute, who's this blonde guy sitting in another uniform? N- now he's sitting in this station. Well, now he's sitting in that station, <laughs> and now we're on uh, regular uh, space station. And um, okay, uh, we're looking at old sci-fi bit set." gimmick that we've seen on a thousand other movies, right? The the spinning lasers that you've seen in Airplane 2 and, and all these other things. And I know Airplane 2 followed Rathacon, but I'd seen it a hundred times. And, and and even the music that you liked, well, I, I was one of the few people that saw Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh. And James Warner <laughs> did the theme for that. And ladies and gentlemen, Battle Beyond the Stars, The Wrath of Khan, I mean, it's a great score and all, um, 48 Hours and Aliens, it's all the same. He, he, won, <laughs> he won an Academy Award for Aliens, so the... <laughs> This and very it's a, same music. It's an exact replica, right? I mean, that whole a- the, the last scene in Aliens was the same scene of the battle scene in the, the Mutara Nebula. It, it is uncanny. So, you know, that was before James Horner really sprouted and, and, and went ballistic. But his first five or six movies... Um, and the only difference really was in 48 Hours, he used steel drums and it had a, it had a kind of a little bit more of a unique well, sound. Well, to, to your point on James Horner, he took... He took inspiration from his own work throughout his entire career, like that, uh, like the villain theme, like that. That is throughout all his movies. That's even like in like Troy, in like two thousand four, two thousand five, whenever that came out. Like I, I was listening to that in the theater. I'm like, oh, 
Yeah, that's that's when Rathacon. Khan. And then even the amazing the amazing Spider-Man, the first the first one, 2011. There's there's one particular cue and it is totally from Rathacon. <laughs> like it's just a straight yeah. up copy and paste. And so I don't know how he get he gets away with that or he got away with that so much. Well, but he uh, would he would make movies though where it wasn't so obvious. Like I remember Braveheart and uh, did he do Titanic? Yes, oh, yes, I he think did. he did. And 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 so so the music there was 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 very original. You know, I mean, he was very young. Uh, in in the eighties, and he was up and coming, but that was why I had a little bit of a tougher time with the Rathacon because you, you know you can debate this to a blue in the face. They made it on the cheap, right? Ten million dollars, right? And they, and they had to. It was going to be a movie of the week, and then they 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 even had it made in the television section of Paramount. They didn't make it in the movie well, I'll, section. I'll, of Paramount. I'll, I'll say this, uh, you know, Star Trek Beyond. It looked great, but it cost a lot of money, and that might be that might be what's holding up Star Trek Four from the Kelvin timeline. So you know, you got you got to balance these things out you know oh i agree don't don't get me wrong zach i still love the movie but when when i went from the motion picture to this movie i'm um, that's that's part of the reason it took me a little bit to get into it and i just had to get over it you know and just and just move on and when they when they killed spock um spoilers for that one person on that desert island who hadn't heard um you know it was it was emotionally jarring you know i didn't want to see him die so and and you know I was very emotional. I was a big Star Trek fan back then, and uh, so that that was that was really it. that's that's why it took me a little bit to get in. But you know I'm I'm speaking to you from the point of when I first saw it. All those things, you know, I, I got over. I mean, it wasn't like it was like okay when I when I first saw it, I was expecting you know to see some of the the beauty that we had in the motion picture, and they just they just couldn't capture it. But they couldn't afford to do it either. They were they would have been foolish to try. And 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 they made a great movie much more cheaply, and it's more like the TV show. And I had to get back into, dude. It's about the characters, you know. It's a, it's about the story. Stop worrying about all the um the, the dressing and window dressing and all that stuff because that's what killed the motion picture. I mean, they they focused on those things. They made a beautiful movie. They didn't do it in the Wrath of Khan. They made a better movie, and I can say that, you know, with with without any hesitation. Well, that's what's great about our different points of view here, Ken, because I I can't even remember a time before the Wrath of Khan. Right? For me, it was always just like, oh, here's Star Trek two. Now I heard Star Trek three. Now I heard Star Trek four. Now I heard Star Trek five. So uh, it just the, to think that you had to watch Spock die, and then had to wait a couple more years from to come back you know, right i mean i mean what a concept right some that especially in this day and age and binge watching and all that uh, people people you know take that take that for granted you know and i think do you do you feel now because you're talking about how you felt when you first saw it and then looking back on it now does that lessen the impact of rathacon knowing all the stuff that came after like i know th- there's been a lot of talk on the network about this over the years and like th- does does you know, Star Trek three, four, et cetera, lessen Star Trek two, or is it good enough to to stand on its own without being diluted by everything happening and it being undone, basically? Yeah, well, maybe a little, but because when I saw it, it had that impact, and literally people were crying in the theaters. I mean, it was it was it was a beautiful scene, and I I think sometimes um, I think among Star Trek fans, we we would all agree that it was a very very powerful scene, very well acted by both. And and the dignity of Spock in that was incredible. You know, tightening the uniform and all that stuff. And now now known as the par- Picard maneuver, by the way. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that that always pulling down on the uniform was something that that Spock always did because he always wanted to look crisp. But I, I guess it doesn't for me because I saw it 
it was emotional. And there was, like you said, there was a time when we didn't know he was coming back. We knew he was directing the next movie. And, you know, the first thing you do when, when, when Star Trek Three came out and we all went to the theaters, uh, nothing had leaked necessarily that he was coming back. Things were a little tighter, no internet, all that other stuff. And when the credits went from William Shatner to DeForest Kelly, it was kind of like, uh-oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe he's not coming back or maybe it's 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 going to be very there, different I, mean, like, I know his name like was that, in the title those few extra seconds i think like they're going like through a cloud and you're like oh is, is it is it time for leonard nimoy's no and it's just i thought that was always clever about star trek 3 where they, just, they leave a little bit more space between shatner and kelly you're like oh i see what they're oh, doing did they? Yeah. did they did they did they was okay so there was there was a, an extra drum beat or two huh between the two i, I never i never picked up on that but um, no so it, it didn't dilute star trek 2 and that's that's still probably um, one of the best scenes, acted scenes, in any of the Star Treks. And I remember seeing Walter Koenig at a, uh, at a convention after Star Trek II came out. And, and even though I guess there was still some, some tensions going on with that cast, but it was, it was, I don't think it got as acute until time went on more and then, then it became a bigger deal than, than it needed to be. But I remember him saying that he had told Bill Shatner... Uh, when they made that movie, and of course he was, Canning was very high in that movie because he had a lot to do in it. Um, he said he, he thought if it wasn't science fiction, if it wasn't Star Trek, that he should have earned an Academy Award. And I thought that was quite a compliment uh, to pay to, to Bill Shatner because I, I know he gets teased a lot for his acting, but he was brilliant in that movie. Absolutely brilliant. I, I would say that Ricardo Maltabon should have at least been nominated for you know a, a supporting actor award for Khan. I mean, because he's an iconic villain. Not only is he Star Trek's most iconic villain, he's one of cinema's most iconic villains, just based off his performance. Just so larger than life, and just so sophisticated, but unhinged, and just... Uh, he, he Everyone brings their A-game in this movie, and it is a shame because, you know, it's, this is a pre-Lord of the Rings world, right, where we don't have Return of the King winning Best Picture, uh, legitimizing genre films, if you will. I don't think they needed to be legitimized, but, you know, some some people would say so. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, just like uh, when Alec Guinness was nominated for a Best... He was at least nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Star Wars. Of course, didn't win. Uh, but, yeah, there, there is a stigma against these, these genre these genre films especially you know back in the in the olden days that, that i feel like we're maybe shaking off now but back in the olden days right <laughs> well I, i'll say that you know alec Guinness had had quite a quite a pedigree and um you know i think i think back in well actually probably even up into much more recent times right there was kind of this big dividing line between quote-unquote television actors and movie actors and movie actors had a different status about them and it was a little bit more elite and if you think about it star trek the star trek movies were loaded with television actors and and of course ricardo multiban was was deep into fantasy island back in those times so i i, I wonder if that 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 that, that prejudice that they had in terms of taking them seriously, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you're on our turf a little bit, um, probably played into that. And you're right, that genre wasn't going to play. I just thought when you look at all the different scenarios that we've had with the, with the cast of that time, for one of those guys to actually say that about Bill Shatner was, you know, that, like that says a lot. Yeah, that says a lot. It says lot. a lot. It says a lot for Walter Koenig's character at the time that he could he could see what whatever you know animosity. Maybe maybe that animosity went away because he had such a big role in Star Trek too, right? And it kind of goes up and down with the times. You know, big role, little role, big role, little role for these for these um, for these for these uh, secondary characters, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and you know, speaking of the Fathom Event screening, it's going to be the director's cut 
of the Wrath of Khan. So it's been, it's been remastered recently. You know, it came out on Blu-ray. Uh, it gets all it gets, Wrath of Khan gets all the love from Paramount, and, and you know, deservedly so. I, you know, so it, it gets a lot of releases. So I, I actually last time I watched Wrath of Khan was at the 50th anniversary, like September 8th, 2016. I said, how should I best celebrate? You know. 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I know. I I have this Blu-ray from the director's cut of Wrath of Khan. I haven't watched yet. I'm gonna pop it in. I'm gonna watch it. Uh, and it was great. And there there are a few small differences between them. And I, I feel like you know I, I, they really strengthen the movie because there's a whole subplot you know with uh, Peter Preston being Scotty's nephew, and uh, that gets cut out of the theatrical cut. Like you don't know. Like it was of course it was in like the comics and the novels and all the you know extra material trading cards. I'm sure said something about it in the 80s. But you know, I just watched the movie as is. You're like, what's the big deal? Why is Scotty so upset about this guy? Why is he bringing him to the bridge? What's the, you know what's the big deal? Uh, but that 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 plot line you get to see more of. And then there's a little, there's a few little scenes here and there in editing things. But uh, on the whole, you know, it's not like you know, it's the Star Wars special edition or you know Blade Runner the final cut, right? There's nothing radically different about the director's cut. Or the theatrical cut. I mean, do you even do you even have a preference, Ken, between the two of them? I could I could take or leave either one, honestly. No, I I, I did like that that one line where Scotty says, you know, my my sister's youngest, you know, anxious to get into space, and and it, it because we all knew, and it was it was well known that he was Scotty's nephew, even though they, they he didn't mention it in the in the original version. No, I, I don't. I don't have a preference at all. Um, the movie flows just fine. You know, I, I think when they do little things like that, it, it makes it a little bit more fun. Even when Kirk was doing the inspection piece, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know, like midshipman, you're a tiger. You know, <laughs> just there are little things here and there, and I think I think it's nice to be surprised at it. It's just that these these additions have been around for a long time, and uh, and, and you know, geez. I want to say since what two thousand and one was probably when we started seeing the director's cut. Yeah, uh, yeah, those like uh, the DVD started rolling out after yeah. I think I think ninety nine was the motion picture director's edition, and then that's when those special edition DVDs started rolling out. Speaking, of, I mean that's that, right. that's the first time I'd seen these movies in widescreen, you know, which is yeah, crazy that's funny, now. Huh? Uh, I mean that's yeah. that. That's something that people don't think about now because whenever you get it a disc, of course it's going to be widescreen if it was a movie, right? But you know right, we're talking course. about the the four by three television age of VHS tapes, you know, and like the unless you got the really expensive tape, you know, in the gold box with the black bars at the top and bottom, you didn't see uh, any right, of these movies right. in widescreen. So uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to see uh, either either version of Rathacon is is good in my book. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit now. Are, are you a fan of um, Nicholas Meyer's commentaries that that attach to the disc? Have you listened to it a number of times? I'm just curious. Oh yeah, Nicholas Meyer is one of the smartest guys in the business, and whenever you get a commentary from him, it's like, ooh, what's he going to say? What kind what kind of knowledge is he going to drop on us? Because the guy he's so sophisticated. You know, he has such a, a good a grasp of literature and just you guys a fountain of of insight into things behind the scenes and just life in general and i you know i said this you know i've been on the edge a couple times and i've said this look about discovery if everything else is horribly wrong about discovery if we just get a commentary from Nicholas Meyer on his episode on the home video release of discovery that will make the whole thing worthwhile <laughs> so yes i i love nicholas meyer's commentaries yeah, I, I I agree. And this one, I, I, you know, it's never the one for the Wrath of Khan. And I've listened to his others. He was on a bit of Star Trek Four. He did Star Trek Six with Denny Martin Flynn. And I've read his book, A View from the Bridge. But this commentary was so fascinating to me because 
you know, I, I love understanding, you know, you're in the production business, the entertainment world, and so you, you probably just from osmosis going to school for it and all that other stuff, you know a lot more than, you'll forget a lot more than I'll ever know about it. But for, but for me, you know, getting kind of an inside view of the thought process that goes into being creative like that and having that type of mind, right? I, I'm a business guy, problem solver, you know, I, I, there's roadmaps and root cause analysis and all these things that we do. We use a lot of tools and, and we can be innovative with those tools. But when it comes to art and being creative, you know, I've never felt I've, I've had that, that skill. And I've always loved um, the diversity in how different people arrive and, and how they view the world. Because that's what makes the world go around. In fact, that's really Star Trek, right? I'm not saying I always agree with everything, but I, I'm fascinated by it. And it also doesn't mean if I don't agree with it that I instantly hate the person. I don't. I, I, I really try to understand how they see things and using the, the movie vernacular, you know, through that lens. And with, with, with Nicholas Meyer's commentary... It was so fascinating to me when he talks about Khan's glove and his whole approach to it. Well, why do you think he wears it? And nobody's wrong, right? <laughs> or uh, when he talks, when he, when he introduces himself and he says, you know, how, what do people describe my profession? And it's a storyteller, and he loves to tell stories. And then he gets into how he tells the stories. And then we learn all along the way, you know, how Spielberg uses storyboards for every single section. There's no you know everything is scripted right there's there's nothing that comes out of left field and and people aren't allowed to to just kind of improvise or any of that stuff spielberg movies like well i didn't know any of that and and the way he approaches it is is very different and you know he talked about a lot of things and he talked a lot about art which i thought was fascinating the deep dive so you know to me it was it was like not only did I love watching the movie and hearing him talk about the movie, I loved him talking about show business, movie making, what art is, what it means, how art thrives on restraint. You know, that uh, you don't have to throw everything in the kitchen sink into the movie. And I guess that's what I was saying to you before, Zach, is, you know, I was looking for everything in that movie, including the kitchen sink. And, and Meyer's like, nope, you're not getting any of that. <laughs> you know, we're going we're gonna to scale it down. We're going to do this. We're going to tell a, a good story. And we're going to have simple things that you can, you know, reflect to, you know, no smoking signs, exit signs. You know, he made it very, very current and very modern at the same time. But I love that commentary. And in fact, you know, his his best line in that was, was art thrives on restraint. Well, Everything thrives in restraint. If, if you know, when you, when you think about it, I've used some of those terminologies and have been able to twist it into the business world and make really great cases why or why we should or should not go in a certain direction, manufacturing a certain product, and used some of those things I've learned from that commentary as to how to communicate why, and that's why it had such an impact on me. It was a great commentary, as you can tell. I liked it a little. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, some commentaries, look, I love value-added material, as I call it these days, right? Special features on, on home video releases. That's the reason I buy stuff to own, really, these days. Because, you know, with streaming and all these things, like, do you really need to own movies and this and that? No, but I want to buy them for the special features, because I'm interested in this kind of stuff. I, even before I worked in this, you know, in the industry that I do, I mean, that's probably why I, I, I gravitated to do what I do now, because I was just so interested in, in all these facets of everything from start to finish. So some commentaries, they're just like glorified promotional material for like the films themselves, you know, uh, or just and then, you know, it 
it's fun to, to hear actors talk about stuff on commentaries, but a lot of the time that devolves into them like joking around, like not taking it too seriously. And, and I get it. You know, I, you know, I get it. I get that point of view as well. But the most fulfilling commentaries are from true artists who are like really like w- want to just share with you their thought process I'm like hey this is what you know here's here's what here's how this came together and this is my thinking and this is you know just connect with you on that level and nicholas meyer definitely does that he he respects his audience and he talks he does not talk down to him he talks up to him you know and that's what's so great about it oh amen brother yeah absolutely right absolutely right and it, it was it was almost disappointing reading his book <laughs> <laughs> because it was the commentary I, I listened to, right? I mean, if you, and I liked his book, and and I and you know, it, and it was much more than just his movie making. It was his personal life and the things that he went through, and you know, he, he went through a lot. There's there's no doubt. You know, he lost his wife, and it was, you know, there's a lot of parts of that book that was very emotional to read, and and he was he was pouring it out on the page, but you know, when it, when it came to the stuff that you know, the meaty stuff that you really like to get into, the the makings of the movies. Well, all of the stuff by the time he wrote A View from the Bridge came out had already been written and he'd been interviewed in in Shatner's books. He'd been interviewed in other books. So there wasn't anything, a, a lot of things new in that, bits and bobs. But um, yeah, I, uh, I I really, really enjoy it. I'm so glad he's on Discovery. I, I think that it would really be value added too if the edge really took a deep dive into what his impact could be because of the way he he thinks and the way he does things because you know at star trek we we talk about canon all the time and how things have to fit and all that other stuff and what does nicholas meyer do the opposite he doesn't care he doesn't care and i think that's a good thing i really do because it shakes things up and he shook a lot of things up in the wrath of khan right but Chekhov wasn't in space seed <laughs> You know, that people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, that 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 can't happen. And you know, where, where's where's Khan's wife? And and how did he get the the Starfleet emblem on his on his necklace? All those things. He didn't care. He's like, no, it looked good. Yeah, I wanted this. You know. <laughs> Okay, he has he has a glove. Why? You tell me. Well, why run the? I love it. Why run the? I love it. Topic of Nick Meyer. Have you heard the rumors about the potential Khan miniseries coming from Nick Meyer? I heard the rumors. Yeah, I heard the rumors. Would that interest I, uh, you at all? No. <laughs> that was a very quick answer there, Ken. <laughs> well, it, it, it would interest me because it's Nicholas Meyer, all right? For all the reasons we're talking about right now, that would interest me. Uh, if it was somebody else doing it, I would feel like it's just a cheap cash grab to be like, oh, what do people like? The Wrath of Khan. Who do people know? Khan. Let's give people what they know, right? The fan service, right? I mean, that's what that's what Star Wars is going to be doing for the next, you know, until we die. Right. <laughs> Here, I, 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 I got you. And, and the reason I said no so quickly is I, I want to see I, – I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm very excited for Discovery. I really am. And, and it looks fascinating, and it's going to be a fun ride. I would like to see what happens beyond the timeline of, of TNG, Voyager, and Deep Space Nine. I really, really would. And I can't think of a better guy – who could take it and turn it on its ear better than than Nicholas Meyer? You you saw what he did for the original series, and and I know you know the actors from from TNG you know they're beyond their ability to to make it work you know cameos or whatever, but man I'd love to see him turn the page and and, and spin it up uh, in the in the late twentieth twenty fourth century. I, I we've we've had the Kelvin timeline movies now we're going to have Discovery so we're going to have a lot of cake. We had a prequel with Enterprise so the last three. Star Trek incarnations have all taken place before the original series. 
fine and dandy. I, I'd love to see, and that's just me, the next the next evolution. I, I want to see where we go beyond. I want to see what happened after, you know, um, Nemesis or what happened after the the the, um, the war with the Dominion. I'm just fascinated by that. Uh, so I guess it isn't so much that. It's you know it's another con series. It's like eh. the other thing I struggle with now is you know all that stuff was supposed to happen in 1996. <laughs> you know I'm as as you know from a lot of discussions. I'm not a big alternate universe fan. It it just I I, I don't I don't get off on that stuff. Um, so th- that's why. But yeah, would would I watch anything Nicholas Meyer's done? Yeah, I, and I've seen all his movies. You know some are better than others. You, you know, and I think that. If it wasn't for Nicholas Meyer, I wonder if Leonard Nimoy would be half the director he was. I don't know. Well, speaking of Leonard Nimoy, he was obviously going to. Well, he, he didn't want to come back for Star Trek. He was done. It was. It was. It was. It was they had to move heaven and earth just to get him in the motion picture. Uh, then to get him back again, of course, everybody knows uh, the famous story. How would you like a great death scene? And then Leonard Nimoy was intrigued, and he got back on the movies, and he had such an excellent time working on the Wrath of Khan. That he wanted to, well, he wanted to keep coming back, and you know, three, four directed them, and this was Spock, and almost Spock all the way up to the Kelvin timeline movie. So, uh, and you know, Nicholas Meyer, you know, him helming the ship, you know, the way he did, uh, very, very well may have, have, you know, given us Spock for the rest of our days here in Star Trek, because you know, it's, it's you talking about the comment series, you know, li- listening how he'd work with William Shatner and just wear him down, you know, take after take after take to get him to, to have the response he wanted. And even Ricardo Montalban, like, Ricardo Montalban started at, like, an 11, and he had to, like, take him down. He dropped some uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier knowledge on him, you know, uh, some acting knowledge. So, and that really impressed Montalban. Uh, he's like, oh, you're going to direct me. So, you know, how he, he's, he is an actor's director from from what I've seen, you know, and, and then he obviously connected with Leonard Nimoy, because they, they, they collaborated again on Star Trek Four heavily, and then, of course, on Star Trek Six, and then Nimoy just can, can continue to carry the torch for Star Trek all the way up through the Kelvin timeline. So so good on Nicholas Meyer for uh, for getting Leonard Nimoy back in the game, huh? No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, and I know how upset uh, Nicholas Meyer was that uh, the death scene, you know, that they filmed those extra scenes of the soft landing of the torpedo and all that stuff. Oh, and, I, I, oh I totally get that though. Like being a, yeah, you know, I, I get that too. A, I get that like too. You, it's you, it's you your movie. movie. It's your movie. And then the producers they yeah. come in and they change it. You're like, no, that is not the story I wanted to tell. <laughs> like you guys undermined what I was doing, and that's why he could he had to step away from three. Of course, they wanted him to come back for three, but. He's like, look, I, I can't be a part of that. And then, you know, and then, and then, as he said, like, well, they'd already brought him back in three, so what's done is done. I can come back for four and six and all that. So yeah, which is just a great way to look at things. But you're right. I think um, it it set Nimoy from being somebody who seemed to be very ticked off with Star Trek. Oh, I shouldn't say ticked off with Star Trek. He wasn't mad at the fans. He was definitely mad at the studio. He was very, very mad with Roddenberry for different reasons. And all things being equal. You know, it, it, it turned the ship as far as, um, you know, Leonard Nimoy's career because he had clout. You know, he was like, you want me back? You, you know, this movie was successful. Great. I, I want to direct the, ne- the next movie. I'm going to direct the next movie. We're going to be in it. Um, and then he started getting gigs like uh, Three Men and a Baby and The Good Mother. And, and you know, he started really showing a, a quite a talent for, for directing. So I think for Leonard Nimoy, it was, it was huge. So to go from, hey, this is a great death scene and finally getting, you know, the ears removed once and for all, 
he grew to accept who he was and, and why people loved him. And, you know, he's just a legitimate good guy. So you're right. The, um, the Wrath of Khan did a lot for Leonard Nimoy. And it did the opposite for Gene Roddenberry, right? Because the studio then played, you know, gave him the Heisman maneuver. You just stay away. <laughs> the Heisman maneuver. <laughs> right? You just, you just stay away. Uh, you're, you're, you know, and I remember too, I still remember the first time I saw the credits and it said executive consultant. Now, I remember looking at that going, oh, that can't be good, <laughs> you know, and, and there was a, an interesting article that Walter Koenig wrote uh, in Starlog at the time, and it was called, Where Are You, Gene Roddenberry? And it was after the Wrath of Khan came out. He, he missed him. You know, he didn't, he didn't see him. So Roddenberry had some overview, and I guess he could make suggestions or whatever, but it was very famous that Nicholas Meyer did not get along with him. You know, he just kind of told him to buzz off. Um, and it even got more and more intense as time went off. Yeah, as, as Roddenberry was trying to get his show back, so to speak, and gain the control of it. And, and they, you know, I'm sure because they, they met with a lot of success. And, you know, from what I understand, too, Roddenberry wasn't, you know, a well-liked fellow on the, on the, on the um, set of the motion picture either. You know, the, no, he was fights under, undermining things left and right. You know, Robert Wise and rewriting scripts and all that. It's like, what are you doing, oh, man? Like, yeah, yeah. so I mean, I, I, it's tough yeah. because Roddenberry. It's hard to step away from something like that you create and you feel like it's yours. You know, these other people are coming in here doing their own thing. But it is interesting to to see. You know, you look. I think most people would consider The Empire Strikes Back the best Star Wars film. And that's the one George Lucas had the least involvement with. It was you know uh, Irving Kirshner and, and Gary Kurtz and and uh, and uh, uh, Lawrence Kasdan. You know, uh, so you know you look at all the other ones that Lucas. I mean, he had like complete control of the prequel trilogy, and we all know how that turned out. And then you know you look back at you know the Star Trek franchise, and Roddenberry had complete control in the motion picture. Uh, we can look back on it and appreciate it now, but at the time the studio was like, hey, this is not what this is not. This didn't connect with people. We got to do. We got to go in another direction if we want to make this thing work. And Wrath of Khan is, you know, the the polar opposite of the motion picture, uh, and very successful, very popular. So they're like, well, we got to stay on this track. You know, I mean, sorry, business is business, Gene. You know, thanks for creating this, but uh, what you would you yeah, have? Would you put I, your your stamp on? Did not work. So we got to move on to something else. Oh, that's right. And and then you know, even when he got the um, TNG launched. You know, things, they worked through it, but there was a lot of turmoil, as we know, uh, the first first couple of years. And as his health diminished, too, I don't think it got any better. I, I can say, you know, I, I don't have, a, I don't have a, um, a vested interest in taking sides in any of this. Because I, I, in Hollywood, there's a lot of egos, you know. And, and Roddenberry obviously gave us a show that, hey, we're, we're doing a podcast on. And so we owe him an awful lot. There's, there's no doubt. Uh, but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't perfect. But for God's sakes, none of us are. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so I don't, I, I, I know that there was tensions and, and there's a lot of egos involved in this. Um, a lot of egos involved in, on the cast of the original series. A lot of egos involved with the writers and the producers at the next generation. But, you know, as, as time went on and, and you look at how the show evolved um, when, when they started to kind of get away from some of his edicts, it just took off. But all he was trying to do, I think, in my opinion, was to drive home that narrative from all the speeches that he did at all the universities. And, and the legend grew from wagon train on the stars to an utopian society. And that's what happened over time. I, I, I don't... 
you know, I, I don't for a second think he was trying to sell a utopian society. Well, yeah, in, I, in I don't. TOS. I don't take. Yeah. I don't take sides in this either. But I do think we can yeah. all we can all see that, that he was in kind of an echo chamber, right? Sure. In the seventies and eighties, where it's like, oh, the gene you created our show, you know, and then right. and then all the the cast members started to feel that way as well, and then sure. you know, and then everybody's ego just. Hey, I don't care who you are. If you go to a, a go to a room and there's like you know ten thousand people there who are there to see you. <laughs> <laughs> your ego is going to mm-hmm. get big and rightly so at that point yeah yeah and that's why I, you know I, and i saw chaos on the bridge i thought it was a, a great documentary and um and then the other day i was listening to um uh to, to that other podcast we have on our network that that one that gets the, the tiny little ratings there mission log <laughs> <laughs> and they had a great they had a great interview with rod Roddenberry, and he had a very different um, feel for, you know, why that movie was made and thought it was very one-sided. I know it's his dad. And I, I just said, you know, well, maybe there is more to this. I don't know. And and this was a great tangent to go on. It's a three-edged but sword, it, Ken. Your side, it, their side, and the truth, right? That That's right. And that's that's why I say, you know, so so the positive impact on Leonard Nimoy, the negative impact I think it, it had on Roddenberry and, and how he felt you know, slighted and and and, and unloved uh, by Paramount, and then getting that control for a syndicated series and and taking off again. So he kind of had his ups and downs, but he um, he found a way, and uh, you know, and and I'm glad that um, you know his his legacy leaves on. And you know, I, you always want to think of somebody like that in the positive, and um, it, it's it's a shame that there wasn't more collaboration and that there was, you know, that he couldn't have been more involved. I mean, Nicholas Meyer, as much as I loved his commentaries and all that stuff, there was a part of me that was like, and I don't know behind the scenes, but you know, he just, he wasn't very kind to Gene at all. And it sounds like Gene wasn't very kind to him at all. And, and, you know, we all want our, our, the people that are making the show that we love to, to, to reflect what's going on on screen, off screen. <laughs> Everybody gets along. We find a way. Oh, there's conflict. We shake and make up and we go on to the next episode next week. Didn't quite happen that way. So Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that, uh, as we're talking egos, right, Greg, you know, one blow for a blow and all this and all that, and there's a lot of just poison in the water eventually with, with, with between Meyer and, and Roddenberry. And that, that is that is unfortunate. But that's why you got to read all the – all the angles. That's what us Uber fans are going to listen to this podcast. We're going to read that book, and somewhere in there is the true story. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't take sides either. I find it, I find it fascinating because you know it's, the, the stories behind the stories are almost just as interesting as the stories themselves, right? Uh, but uh, you know, before we before we wrap everything up here, I, I do want to go back to that since we you know we're talking about the Rathacon here. Uh, I, I, this is this is current events, breaking news, right? Breaking rumors, anyway. That that Rathacon, right. that Rathacon series, you were so quick to shoot down. Can, um, <laughs> I didn't shoot it down. You just asked me a direct question. I gave you a direct answer. I, I, I again because it's Nicholas Meyer. I'm interested to see it. If, if this yep. is, and, and by the way, Nicholas Meyer, he's he's been kind of coy about this. Like people have reached out to him about this, and he's like, I cannot possibly confirm. You know, he's using like these puns, and so like I think there's something to this. He said he's working on another Star Trek project. No, I think. I think something. I think this con miniseries, in some form or fashion, will happen, and uh, it's it's rumored to take place during his exile on City Alpha Five. I'm not too interested in that, um, you know, because it. But I get why they would do that because it's super cheap, right? I mean, you get you got you film like outside, like in a park, for like a couple episodes, right? And then City Alpha Six explodes, and then you just film like on a sound stage with a bunch of sand the rest of the episodes, right? Uh, you know, so so I, I get that. What I'd be more interested in was seeing the rise of Khan in the 90s, uh, you know, on, on Earth and the Superman and all that, and then him going into space before 
the Enterprise finds him. I find I, I would find that a more interesting story. And you know, I, I say, why not do it all? Why not do the life and times of Continuity and Seeing? There's been books, there's been comic books, there's been you know, there this story does exist in you know the expanded universe, if you will. Uh, you know, but once it becomes on screen, it becomes canon. So that'd be that'd be a lot of fun to to see. But the the thing that that mentally is like, well, this is this this is not like Nicholas Meyer because as we're talking about, you know. He doesn't care about explaining why Khan wears the glove or where he got the Starfleet from. And if you do a prequel show, that's almost the purpose of that kind of thing, right? Oh, here's the phaser accident that ruined Khan's hand, right? Or here's where he got the, the belt buckle from his wife before she died, right? Those are the thing, those are the things that infuriate people about prequels, like, you know, the Star Wars prequels. Where it's like, oh, well, this is where this happened. Do you connect all the dots, right? That's just, that is not... That is being that is talking down to your audience. That's the lowest common denominator to kind of like connecting of the dots, in my opinion. So I wouldn't want to see that, but I don't think Nicholas Meyer would do that. Although in in the hands of anyone else, I think that's exactly what that show would be. So um, I I would I would like to see it, and I and I totally get why they would want to go to. They want to go to Con. They want to go to those for the same reason. They keep re-releasing and upgrading and and cleaning up and and, and doing theatrical releases for the Wrath of Con. It's the same reason why they would tie in. Uh, if they're looking for another, you know, mini series or something, they would tie it into the Wrath and Con, the most iconic, famous Star Trek property of them all. So, uh, if if he makes it, I'll watch it. <laughs> no doubt about it. I, 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 you know, it's it's fine. You want you, you want you, you had quite a role there, Zach. I, I, I hear you. You know, going one way and then back the other, and he did this, and he's going to do that, and and yeah, I, you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think, first of all, if they want to get the truth, they have to interview his dog because he's the only one that, <laughs> that tweets. Dog, yeah. Right? The <laughs> only one that tweets and lets you know what's going on in the first place. So I think that's 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 a bit of a, of a mistake going directly to him. He is a punny guy. There's no doubt about it. But I don't know. I, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see what evolves. Like I said, I, I'm ready to jump forward. I'm ready to jump forward beyond TNG at this point with, with everything we've had, and I'd love to see his, him tell it. And if it's, if it's a con story, will I watch it? Absolutely. It's Star Trek, brother. I'm going to watch it. You know, I, I, I love it all. I, I'm just, like I said, I'm ready for it to evolve. Imagine 24th technology with today's technology making it. It, it would be quite a ride, man. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. A um, couple of things I just wanted to, to say. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, making something old new again. That was a good episode we did, right? Number 160, <laughs> if people are interested. And then, again, I will say that uh, we had a great talk with, with Norm uh, about the Wrath of Khan and the motion picture. That's Standard Orbit 123. If you haven't listened to it in a while, go back. There, there was a lot of details. That was more of a facts and figures and, and numbers and you know, kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. I pulled a lot of information, data, about both movies, um, how successful they were, how much money they made, um, critics, Rotten Tomato scores, all that stuff. So if you're, you're interested in, in more stuff along those lines, for The Wrath of Khan, it is encapsulated in that in that episode, and I would encourage you to go back and uh, into that library there and take a listen. And as for The Wrath of Khan itself, if you guys want to check it out when it comes back to theaters, it's going to be Sunday, September 10th, and Wednesday, September 13th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time. So we're giving you guys like a month's notice, plenty of time to figure it out. Uh, go to FabMaEvents.com, get your tickets. Uh, we are not sponsored by them, but it would be nice. So <laughs> we're our free tickets, gamers, our press pass for these things. But uh, but yeah, I think I think we're definitely going to try uh, and see it maybe even together ken that the stars may align and allow us to uh to finally see some star trek together huh that'd be fun hey that that would be fun zach uh, hopefully we can pull it since yeah you're right we'll be in colorado we'll be at uh 
one of our buddies' weddings out there, and that would be we're gonna be with a lot of Star Trek fans. Maybe we can we can pull them all in to go see it. Yeah, they didn't make Vegas this year, but we can make this one. So, I'm I'm gonna try like hell to get out there next year. I um I couldn't this year, and I'm I'm so sad about it. But I had no choice. We just just sold my my whole division, and so I was traveling all over the country. I flew over Vegas. I waved, but <laughs> I wasn't able to go. And um, when I saw all the stuff, um, all, all the stuff coming from our friends, uh, it, it it made me made me quite emotional, and I missed them very much. So yeah, we we got to get back there next year, Zach. We got to commit to that somehow, some way. Yeah, I made kind of a jokey tweet that I could probably swing it every seven years. You know, do it like a pond far cycle going to Vegas, but we'll see. You know, I, I didn't think I would miss it as much as I did. Uh, but seeing everybody's, you know, like I said, all of our our podcasting friends now, and then all the news coming out, I'm like, I really did get nostalgic about the SDLV fifty. That's right. Hey, it was the people, right? It really was the people. The the the, the, the people on stage and all they, they were fine, but no, it was, it was it was our friends. It was our the people are part of our network, other networks that we've got to get to that we've gotten to know over the years, and and just just good people. And and I I do miss uh, just kind of people watching when you go to this, and you you sit back and you smile because you just like, hey, it doesn't matter who you are. Um, you're accepted here, and that's 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 the neatest thing about all of Star Trek to me is, you you get to go and it's like nobody's gonna judge you. Just go have fun, wear what you want to wear, you, you know, um, smile, get into it. Who cares? You know, it's it's so important nowadays. The the level of stress, the amount of hours we work, all that other stuff. If you can go someplace and disconnect and and find that brother and sisterhood, go baby, go. Well, the Rathacon isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Shrek FM. Here's a quick look at some other things you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. And that is the amazing episode, Darmok. I love Darmok, one of my very favorite episodes. I think it's just such a brilliant concept to have a species that uses uh, metaphorical language. Um, it's such a great story about about understanding and risking and sacrificing for that that understanding. I'm just always captivated by the episode every time uh, that I see it. Saturday Morning Trek. This episode is the only Star Trek that they used to only watch with me. Like, they had no interest in Star Trek except for this episode. If I said Star Trek, they'd say, Tribbles, oh, let's watch that that Tribbles where they get real big and sits in Kirk's chair. They saw the live action one. They didn't, I mean, they kind of liked it, but they always went to the animated one. Standard Orbit. Star Trek 3 was really good. But man, that bridge was cheap. That, that was set. That set was horrible. Anyway. Maybe maybe, sh- maybe they had a deal. Maybe Shatter into this Vic Twenty commercial in the game. Some, <laughs> some Commodores for the bridge. They're like, oh, we got you, we got you covered, man. So. Yeah, because when it said "Good morning, Captain," it looked a lot like the graphics we just witnessed on the Commodore. And introducing the Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. What have you done out there on the edge of Federation space? Welcome to The Edge, Trek FM's brand new podcast where we dive into the final frontier of the newest Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, the first Star Trek series to be on air in 12 and a half years, something like that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. 
That helps us greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and of course in the Babel Conference. Type Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron on the network on Patreon. If you visit Patreon slash TrekFM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM, you'll find the current goals and different milestone contributions along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details on patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our great associate producers for Standard Orbit. We have Renee Roberts, Norman Lau, Aaron Harvey, Tim Robertson, Nick Anastasio, Richard Marquez, and Corey Elrod. Yes, thank you guys so much for your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM. Uh, so, Ken, if people want to find you out there on the internet, where can they find you? Hey, you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference and engaging people when I when I have the opportunity. You can also find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at BostonSCPO, and we uh, we like to tweet out all our new episode information as soon as we get it, as well as well as our colleagues. So, look for me there. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman series from the early 2000s, and you can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.